After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to our where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? 
What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers who are of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Good morning again, everyone. It's a joy to be able to unpack God's Word with you today. Keep those Bibles open if you've got them, and there should be some uh, an outline on the back of the handout as there often is. Um, John 7, we're going to be looking at expectations of Jesus that different people have and seeing um, how Jesus responds to that and considering the expectations that we ourselves bring to Jesus and to God and to this time that we gather here together. And so as we start thinking about that, I want you to Reflect on if you've, you've ever met somebody who was not at all like you expected them to be. Maybe one of your friends had told you about somebody that you should meet. They're like, hey, come meet this person. It'll be great. And as they described them, you built this image in your head when you met them, how they would look, how they would act, what their voice would be like, the kind of things that they'd say. And then you meet them, and they're absolutely nothing like that. And it's really, really confusing. Or maybe in this day and age, you've met a friend in person who you've only talked to online or over the phone. I remember joining a, a voice call while playing a video game with some friends and somebody saying that that is not at all what I expected you to sound like. As humans, we like to make predictions and build expectations. We like to put people in boxes and organize them. And this can be helpful, but it's really easy for us to build false assumptions and then to get caught up in them. Think of key people from the world today who we find ourselves talking about in discussions as we contemplate different opinions. Think of all the, the conversation around King Charles and his coronation, or the controversy following Will Smith's slap to Chris Rock at the Oscars. When these things happen, these people's names dance around the conversations of the public with some supporting some criticizing and anything else in between. And so in the midst of that, we imagine that we know 
and understand these people whose names we mention so frequently, when really we've never had the chance to meet them or listen to them or talk with them, but still we think we understand them in their lives. And this was true for the people in Jesus' day as well. And in fact, Jesus has been one of these such names discussed and debated and pondered. People have had expectations for hundreds of years about who this coming Messiah will be. And now people have heard rumors from their friend who listened to this Jesus guy preaching the other day. Or maybe they've heard the condemnation from the the religious leaders. These people have opinions and expectations of Jesus. And these uh, these expectations guide how they interact with and respond to him. And similarly, as we come to this passage today, we come with our own expectations. And many of us as well come knowing friends or family who we see having false assumptions, but who we wish would come to see him more truly. And so as we delve into the word together today, as we hear Jesus' response to the crowds in his own day, let us humble ourselves and open our ears to who he says he is. And so I'm going to pray before we keep moving. Holy Father, thank you for the gift of your word that you speak to us and that you guide us. And we pray that as we come to it this morning, that your spirit would be present to soften our hearts and to open our ears, that you would be guiding the words that I speak, that it would be your truth that would be made known today and that it would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage today picks off um, in John 7, is a few months after the events in John 6 that we heard about last week. Jesus has been staying in Galilee since then, not yet going down to Judea because the Jewish leaders there are seeking to kill him. It's just coming up to the last festival in the Jewish calendar. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths, sometimes a feast of those. This time served as a remembrance of the Israelites' wilderness journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, where God provided for them as they lived in tents or booths for 40 years. And during this time, each family was to construct a booth that they lived in for a week. And what's important about this passage to recognize is that many people made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And while all these people are Jews, they all come together from different places, with different backgrounds, different expectations, different thoughts. And it's amidst these rumors and gossip that they bring their different opinions and expectations and cannot agree on who Jesus is. And we heard that really explicitly in verse 43, which says that the people are divided because of Jesus. And there's so many examples of this throughout the passage. In verse 15, we hear that the crowds are amazed at his teaching. But then by verse 20, some are saying that he's demon-possessed. And they're calling him a madman like this because he has claimed that some people are trying to kill him. And they think that's just ridiculous. Then before you know it, a few verses later in verse 25, people identify him as the man they are trying to kill. In verse 27, there are those who say that they, don't, that they don't know where Jesus is from, and because of this, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. So they do know where Jesus is from, and so he can't be the Messiah because no one will know where the Messiah is from. And yet, in verse 41, others claim that they can't be the Messiah because they do know where he comes from, 
and they know, all they know about Jesus is that he's from Galilee. So that can't be right. In verse 40, there are... Sorry, that's a bit. So who is right? Who are they going to decide that this Jesus is and who are we going to decide that this Jesus is? And as we explore this passage today, we're going to see different people's expectations, how these expectations lead to different responses and actions, and then we're going to see how Jesus responds and the words that he has to share. So first of all, let's jump back to the start of John 7 and consider what uh, these first people have to say. These are Jesus' brothers, likely sons of Mary, so real biological half-brothers of Jesus. And they don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And they've grown up around him, and you can imagine all the expectations and prior assumptions that they would bring with that experience. But they've heard about and maybe even seen some of the signs that Jesus has been doing. And they tell him in verses 3 and 4, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. And this is a view of success measured from the world's perspective of what the world recognizes. Right? They're thinking, well, Jesus, you're doing all these fancy signs, all these cool things which attract crowds. Why are you trying to do them in secret? Go on, show yourself to the world. Why would you be doing them unless you want to become a public figure? Get that public recognition. Get that praise. That must be what you're after. And maybe in some ways, you might be somebody who can relate to Jesus' brothers. Maybe you feel like you've grown up around Jesus. And maybe you don't feel like you've ever really been able to believe exactly what he says is true. And you might have spent lots of time around a church, around people who've talked about Jesus and have that familiarity with him, but it might not seem possible that he could really be God. And what's that all got to do with you anyway? And even for those of us who believe in Jesus, you might be able to recognize some of the same expectations or desires as Jesus' brothers. And it's easy for us to wish that Jesus would just reveal himself more clearly more blatantly, just a little bit more obvious that we wouldn't have to doubt him at all, that we could just have faith. But even more so than that, often, that he would finally prove those people who mock him wrong, that he would show up and then we could all say, see, look, there he is, here's his powerful sign, now they'd be the false. But Jesus' response shows something different. He's not working on the timing of the world because his goals are not the same. He's not seeking to please the world or to show them up, but instead he knows that the world will hate him because he says that its works are evil. And so he's not going to go to the feast with Jesus' brothers because his time has not yet come. He's not here to make a scene or to put on a big performance. Jesus is following the Father's will and plan, not personal ambition. And so he travels to the feast later in secret. And it's now halfway through this week-long festival, amidst all these whispering rumors about Jesus, that he begins to teach. And so in the midst of this, we see the crowd's response to him. To start with in verse 15, as he teaches, the people are amazed by what he has to say. 
And they know that Jesus hasn't been taught as their teachers of the law and of the Pharisees. Now, he's a carpenter. He's a tradie. Their expectation for him doesn't account for such extraordinary wisdom. And so obviously they ask where it could be from. How is this possible? And Jesus explains, it's possible because this teaching is not his own. It comes from the Father who has sent him. He hasn't needed to learn earthly wisdom. He hasn't made up or discovered his own understandings. But he speaks the perfect wisdom of God the Father. And in proof of this, he says that anyone who chooses to do the will of God, who believes and follows him, will come to understand and know and trust this same truth that he brings. Like Jesus' brother's preconceived misconception, Jesus isn't speaking for his own glory. He's speaking for the glory of the one who has sent him, in whom there is nothing false. Because his words aren't his own, they don't glorify him. They're intended to glorify the Father. Jesus is teaching from the Father and for the Father. And from verse 19, Jesus builds off of this to make a point too of what happens when people speak on their own for personal glory. He points to the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders who want to kill Jesus, although they themselves are not keeping the whole law. He points out how angry they are at Jesus for healing a whole man on the Sabbath, or they themselves will perform a circumcision on the Sabbath. The leaders hold to the law that suits them, forcing them these restrictions on others with crazy specifics and additions, or they themselves are willing to compromise when they see the need or they so desire. And it's after this that Jesus builds up to a point that is really key in this whole passage of Scripture. In verse 24, he says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. He challenges these people to lift their masks of culture and tradition and experience and expectation to see deeper into the truth of what God is doing here. And I wonder, have, have any of you worn like cellophane glasses at any point? I feel like the classic ones are like the 3D ones where you have like the blue cellophane on one side and the red on each other, but you can, you can do it with any kind of color of cellophane. And it's a really fun thing to do, particularly with kids, because when you wear these, it changes the way that you see everything in the world. For example, if you put purple cellophane onto the glasses, you put them over your eyes, everything looks purple. And this is all cool and fun because you can just take the glasses off and everything goes back to normal. It's all good. But what we don't realize as humans is that in life we build a lens that shapes how we view the world. And we're not always so good at recognizing that. Maybe you've had some experiences that have left you angry and bitter and frustrated. This might be like a dark red lens that shapes everything that you see with this vision of anger. Maybe your lens just puts the world in grayscale where everything is shades of black and white because the world is just numb. Maybe there's just been too much hurt or pain and you just want to hide from it and put it away. Maybe in some ways your, your lens is like some kind of mirror system. Wherever you look, everything just seems to point back to you. Whatever it may be, this lens will shape how you view all of life. 
And it changes how you're likely to view Jesus too. You might get caught up thinking that if you were God, you would have done things quite differently. And if only he listened to you and your wisdom, he'd have sorted it all out. Maybe your lens is a particular shape and you're after a Jesus that can fit in that particular mold of priority. And it's not a bad thing to have a lens like this. It's part of life. But it is so, so important that we take the time to step back and to consider what our lens is with which we view the world. And this takes humility and open-mindedness. And realistically, the most likely way this will happen is through the loving rebuke of others, guiding us to see the world more clearly through the eyes of Jesus. When we're wearing our glasses all the time, we forget that they're there. It's a lot easier for our friend to say, hey, you should maybe look at your glasses. But (laughs) Jesus' words should be what dictates our lens because as he implores in verses 28 and 29, he is not here on his own authority, but on the basis of the truth of the Father who sent him. But as we've seen through the crowds here, it's all too easy to be caught up in our lenses. And these different lenses lead to different opinions of Jesus, which lead to all kinds of different actions and responses. And this is really important for us to notice in this passage, because it's still true that who we think Jesus is will determine how we relate with and what we do with or about Jesus. Will we believe him? Like some in the crowd who recognize his signs and see that there has to be something different about this man? Or will we fight against him and push back like those in the crowd who try to seize him, refusing to see beyond our own perception no matter what he says? Because ultimately, regardless of what anyone says, no matter what is going on around us, we don't have to conform to others' opinions or the thoughts of culture. And consider the temple guards sent by the Pharisees and chief priests to arrest Jesus in verse 32. They've just been instructed to do their jobs. Nothing crazy. Those who they likely respect and look up to, the people who should have the wisdom and understanding about spiritual things, have given them guidance and instruction. Go and arrest Jesus. It's pretty simple. But as they listen to Jesus, they can't help but be moved. And we hear from them again in verse 45, when they return days later empty-handed to these, to these uh, religious leaders. And all they have to say is that no one ever spoke the way this man does. They can see that there has to be something different about this Jesus. And who could preach the way that he does? Who could bring these words? And so they hold confidently to it. And Jesus knows that the world will hate him. He's mentioned that already at the start of the passage. And he says in chapter 15 that it will hate his followers too. So how then can we have the confidence to stick with him and to hold fast to Jesus in the midst of condemnation? We can do so by not we can do so by knowing that no one else speaks the way Jesus does. And there is no other son of God. No one on earth speaks with the authority he does, with the wisdom he does. 
No one else can offer us eternal satisfaction. As we heard from Jesus' disciples last week in chapter 6, there is nowhere else to go. No one else has the words of eternal life. The Pharisees are the most stuck in their ways and increasingly frustrated by Jesus. They look down on the temple guards as if they are foolish, claiming that these, these common people have been deceived, unlike the clever rulers and Pharisees who have not believed. They even go on to say that these common people, this mob who knows nothing of the law, has a curse on them. And you, you might notice that it is increasingly common in our culture for belief in Jesus to be labeled as foolish. That weak, simple-minded people are deluded into a fantasy with no real substance or meaning. They've just been led astray and deceived. And I wonder how many of you here today have been talked about or talked to in this way. Please trust that despite any taunting you may face, the truth of Jesus remains. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's in the midst of this hard-heartedness of religious leaders that we hear from someone called Nicodemus, who you might remember from chapter 3. While the Pharisees are boldly proclaiming that no one of their great high standing and education has believed in Jesus, Nicodemus has already visited Jesus in the dead of night. He has heard of the need to be born again, heard of the new life that Jesus offers. Nicodemus, the same one we will hear about in chapter 19, where he brings 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes to place with Jesus' body on the tomb. Nicodemus invites the Pharisees to just stop and listen to Jesus, to hear him and to find out what he's been doing, to search for more. But the Pharisees aren't interested in that. And in fact, they insult Nicodemus saying that he's from Galilee too and falsely claiming that no prophet comes from Galilee. And while the people of Galilee may have had a poor reputation in their opinion, we do know that at least Jonah has come from Galilee. And maybe in some ways you might be able to relate. Maybe you're someone here today who hasn't thought all that much about Jesus or maybe you have thought or heard a lot but you still wouldn't consider yourself someone who, who follows or wants to follow him. Don't just be like the Pharisees, but heed the advice of Nicodemus to pause and to listen to Jesus. And please hear what he has to say for himself. Make a right judgment, not one based on outward appearances and the rumors of the world. And so what, what has Jesus had to say for himself. Who does he say that he is? What is Nicodemus suggesting that they listen to? What words have halted the temple guards? We find these in verses 37 and 38. We have this key moment in the chapter where Jesus provides a really clear answer to his presence and his purpose here. What this teaching and timing of the Father is pointing to. And as he does this, he builds off of a component of how 
the festival was practiced, where water would be drawn from the pool of Siloam and taken to a basin near the altar of the temple. This was a way for them to remember God providing water in the desert, a reminder of his continuous sustaining of his people. Jesus uses this recognition of physical dependence to push deeper and to invite people to ponder. He's essentially asking, what is your deep spiritual thirst that you feel? He says, come to me and drink. But as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within you. He's referencing passages from the Old Testament, like Zechariah 14.8, which talks about living water flowing out of Jerusalem. Or Isaiah 44.3, where it says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. This isn't just some dude talking at a festival. This is the Son of God who has come to fulfill centuries-old prophecies. He offers an invitation for all people to come to Him and to find new life and perfect, eternal, lasting satisfaction. As John points out, this living water is the promise of the Holy Spirit who is to be poured out after Jesus has ascended back to the Father. You might remember as well that Jesus has already talked about living water Back in chapter 4 of John, he mentions water that will become in people a spring of water welling up in eternal life. People's expectations of Jesus divide because they don't line up. When everyone has their own expectations, when when Jesus is about who people expect or want him to be, everyone's Jesus is different. But the truth of Jesus promises to unite. Because he draws people around truth. Because he is the way and the truth and the life. People of all backgrounds, of all cultures, ages, socioeconomic environments, all people can be united around the truth of Christ. It doesn't matter the lens. It doesn't matter the brokenness. It doesn't matter the past. Jesus' invitation is unconditional. And so who do you say Jesus is? As you've heard the rumors of the crowd and the teachings of Jesus, what have you seen? And what expectations or desires for Jesus do you bring that guide the way that you think about him? There's a little skit called the McJesus skit, and it's one that gets done with team missions a bit. I don't know if any of you have heard about it before, but the basis of the skit is that you have one person who's the cashier, and they're working at an establishment called McJesus. And you have different people come through, and they order the kind of Jesus that they want. So some people come through, and they want a Jesus or like who's really, who's really wrathful, right? Who's going to smite their boss with a lightning bolt, all these kind of things. Some people want the warm, cuddly Jesus, going to come in and give them a big embrace. And finally, someone comes through who says that they just want the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, and then the McJesus person says, well, you have to go to our McBible campus then, and then you get one with the right translation and extra prophecy or whatever else that you want. And it's a really funny skit, but it, it also points to something really important in how it's easy for us to come to the Bible 
and not see what it has to say for us, but to look for the Jesus that we want in the Bible. And so it's important for us to think about what wrong boxes do we maybe put Jesus in? What lens do we have that we might not have noticed? Maybe in some way we are like Jesus' brothers searching for signs. Have you ever been really frustrated when you prayed for God to do something powerful, but he didn't? Maybe you really hoped that he would heal a sick family member or friend, or maybe you've just longed for him to do something inexcusably clear in your life so you could just be completely certain about him. Look to him and trust in his timing and his promises. Maybe you're not quite after a Messiah, but you're looking for a Jesus who is a good teacher, who has these wise words for your life that you can look to. But if Jesus' words are wise, if they are to be as amazing as the crowd says they are, it is only because these words are from God the Father. And the implications for this are so much more than just wisdom. But they point to who Jesus really is. Maybe we we find ourselves looking at Jesus with the lens of the law, focused on specifically following rules to try and please him while tying ourselves up in a knot. And the law gives wonderful guidance on how we can live our lives, but it is not intended for us to try and please Jesus or earn his love. He loves us. The point of the law is to show us our dependence on him, to point us to run to him as this saviour who offers living water. It can be easy for us as humans to come to Jesus like some kind of spiritual builder bear. We want to come in and pick the Jesus who will be the perfect addition to our life without having to change anything. Hello, yes, I'd like to uh, build my perfect Jesus today. That's correct. No, I think I'll go with the, the white skin variety. I've seen there lots of paintings. I think it's a bit more approachable for me. Um, and go easy on the wrath, please. Like not too much of that talk, but just a real focus on how much he loves me and just really wants me to be happy. Um, and you know, not, not too clingy. Like I want to better hang out with him at church and at Bible study, but to just leave him at home when I go out to work, when I hang out with my friends. I don't think we're quite as blatant as that. But I know how easily my mind can be led astray in such subtle ways without even realizing what's happening. I mean, think about the way that we approach how church has to look. And so much of this stems from our culture, our previous experiences, our preferences. And people around the world come to church in so many different ways and do so with thousands of years of history. But believe me, I know how easy it is to think that there is only one right way to do church. That Jesus can only be worshipped with this particular translation of the Bible. Or that we can only sing these kind of songs in this kind of way. Or that we have to wear these kind of clothes or gather in this kind of building. And now I don't want to presume, but I'm inclined to think that as I read some of those, you potentially thought of a specific person, and maybe even someone in this room. 
But I do wonder how many of you looked to yourself and were really willing to consider what expectations and lenses you have and why. To genuinely reflect on how much of what you think is from preference and culture and how much is biblically mandated truth. And there's nothing wrong with preference until it becomes our theology. We don't have to each come to church with our different versions of Jesus to pit them against each other. We're not here to give our different dividing opinions on rumors or just to seek out that one person who has the same specific beliefs so that you can chat comfortably with them. We come together as messy people, but knowing that Jesus has invited us to come to him and drink, to take hold of the living water he promises, that we can find new life and that we can be united around his truth and not divided by our own opinions. It doesn't mean that we can't share and learn and reflect. And in fact, I would encourage you after church today to talk with somebody and ask them about who Jesus is to them to learn from them, to listen to them, and to seek more of him together. Be willing to consider what false expectations you might bring, to be able to see Jesus in truth, because he and he alone offers living water. He speaks the words of eternal life, and he calls us to follow him.